We have sort of this hot, you know, melted truffle goat cheese. The dough is cooked with this nice seasoned and flavored olive oil. And then you kind of get a cold contrast with the gin pickled bee. I'm Jane Z, and this is Farm to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. Well, this was unexpected. My plan for today's episode was originally a behind the scenes of Chef Dr. Mike's kitchen, his favorite recipes, weekly shopping routines, kitchen essentials, and things like that. We got into one of his rituals, Friday night pizza, and ended up talking about pizza for almost an hour. But I'm not mad about it. In fact, it was the first time we got to really hear more from Chef Dr. Mike's culinary side. And let me tell you, I got so hungry listening to him talk about sourdough bread and fresh cheese and gin pickled beets. Delicious. If you're new here, Chef Dr. Mike is our culinary medicine expert. He's been on the show a few times now. I highly recommend listening to our first episode together on veganism and the more recent one on the gut microbiome. But for now, we've got a delicious episode ahead. You're going to want to pick up some pizza ingredients after this. Before we get started, I have an exciting announcement. Farm to Future is officially turning one this month. Yes, it's been a year, and what a fun, wild ride it's been. To celebrate and to thank you all for your incredible support, I'm hosting a giveaway. And yes, we are giving away some delicious and sustainable goodies from some of our guests this past year. Here's what's in the, what I call the sustainable snack pack. First off, you've got regenerative Asian spice jerky and pork floss from Bon Jerk. You've got a selection of dried gourmet mushroom products, including mushroom hot cocoa from Sporadic. We have fair trade organic coffee chocolate bars from Koba Coffee, some ancient grain granola from Tefola, and last but not least, a video course on how to make your own probiotic boza drink from Ancestral Kitchen. So much good stuff. I am a huge fan of all of these up and coming brands and their amazing founders, and I'm so excited for you to try their stuff. All you have to do is enter your email in the giveaway form by November 22nd. The link is tiny.cc slash farm to future. It's also in the show notes and we'll randomly select a winner on November 23rd. By the way, if you're a fan of matcha like me, Koba Coffee just launched their Kickstarter for matcha bars, as well as chai and hojicha bars. So get yours while you can. I just ordered mine. Can't wait to try them. Link for that is also in the show notes. Alrighty, so to recap, enter the giveaway, go get some matcha bars, and be kind to yourself and enjoy the show. We're back for another culinary medicine episode with our favorite chef, Dr. Mike. Welcome. Hey, Jade. Thanks for having me back. We've both had quite the summer. Do you want to tell listeners what you've been up to with your travels? And I know you've been uh, up on PBS now. We're a little celebrity. Yeah, yeah. It's been exciting. So finally, our uh, PBS special, House Calls with Chef Dr. Mike, aired. And I can send you the link for your listeners. The station's also put it up on YouTube, so you can watch the whole 30-minute episode. And there's been enough of a positive response that PBS has come and asked us for two seasons, wow. uh, which we're really excited about. And one of the things I really like about working with PBS is we've licensed it for free to PBS for their education arm, which means that they'll be 
taking the episode and cutting it up into little bits and pieces. And then they put a curriculum with that and they distribute it. So our program content is available in every school, K through 12, public school in the United States uh, for teachers to use the little teaching points that we have in there. So if any of your listeners are educators, that's an additional resource that's available to them. We're really excited about that. And right as that was launching, then we went off and did my first overseas culinary medicine. It was more than an experiment, but it quite turned into an experiment as you and I were talking about <laughs> uh, over in Ireland. When I'm going to do these things, I pack an extra suitcase that's just full of my equipment. And when we got there, I plugged the converter in, plugged some of my equipment in, went to work. I, I started to use one of the food processors and it started smoking and the converter started smoking. Oh, and, no. and so needless to say, my, my suitcase was lighter coming back. <laughs> Without the additional equipment, but it was really great because we went back to basics. There I was with a room for people and it's, and it's, Hey, you know what? I'm going to show you exactly how much you can do with just yourself and a chef's knife. Okay. I do want to get into some of your favorite recipes and where you typically go to shop for your food and your ingredients. Maybe we can start talking about kind of your weekly food routines. Yeah. And it's fun to share kind of my secrets, you know, um, yeah, a little peek behind the scenes Yeah, behind the scenes at the kitchen. And so it depends on the season. So how and what I get and subsequently what I, I cook is very seasonally dependent. So right now we're getting kind of the very last bits and bobs from our garden. It's actually pretty rare in Montana this late into the season we get them, but we just brought up a whole big bowl of fresh from the garden tomatoes. So uh, I'll be doing wow in October. Yeah, we're like holy cow! And I look back in the Facebook memories while we we're in Ireland. Like I got three of them for three different years. Our garden covered in six inches of snow. So one of my favorites with fresh tomatoes is, is I really love them on a sandwich. But as you and I have talked, I'm pretty particular about the bread, so I don't buy commercial bread. My daughter was feeding our sourdough while I was gone in Ireland which meant that I actually couldn't dig in and use it, you know, for about two weeks. One of the secrets is thinking ahead is, okay, well, I've got these tomatoes. I love that on a kind of sandwich. It's going to be warm and sunny this weekend. Well, I want to have some bread. So we put together my 100%, you know, sourdough to make some sourdough baguettes. And, oh, that and, sounds and, delicious. Uh, yeah, we have ability to get some local cheeses. Uh, we've got a little shop uh, where they import some European style cheeses and meats and things like that. And so what I picked up, because we actually drove through Cashel in Ireland to have now at home with some Cashel blue cheese. So you see how this menu is coming together, right? Fresh bread, fresh tomatoes, some really good Irish blue cheese. And one of the other things that I recently picked up was some delicious truffle honey. So putting that, yeah, that goes great with the tomato and the blue cheese and, you know, this pretty sourdough bread. Where we often, I find folks fall in the convenience trap is to not think ahead and then you kind of like it's dinner time i'm hungry what can i go out and buy and that's where you, you know you kind of get sucked into the ultra processed food because it's quick it's convenient or the drive-through so you know i'm obsessed with food obviously but if you're obsessed and thinking about it think a little bit ahead of time so i'm you know it's friday but i'm already thinking about you know saturday sunday and that's why the bread got done today because one of the, the benefits of making it not only delicious because fermentation equals flavor. So the longer mm-hmm. I can ferment my bread, the more flavorful it's going to be, but it's also going to be healthier for me. 
because that fermentation process, particularly with sourdough and the lactobacilli, it's going to break down a lot of the gluten. It's going to make the bread much more digestible. It's going to affect the final food matrix. So all those things build flavor, build functionality, a better food experience for me as a simple consumer. But also I'm, I'm bringing better health to me and my family who are then going to eat those products. So get that food bug, you know, always be thinking about it. You know, what do I want this week? Or And, and I always encourage people, listen to your body too. Like right now it's starting to get a little bit cool, but I'm still not where it's like, gosh, I want a really hearty stew. Now, mm. when you and I talk in December or January, it'll be dark outside. It's cold here in Montana. We're doing cassoulet. We're doing maybe Guinness stew. We're doing, mm. doing some of those sorts of things, but it won't be, you know, fresh tomatoes and breads and cheeses. The other thing that I do, and we still have this going till the end of October here is a CSA. It's great because obviously that produce changes as the seasons do. And really now they're getting into different types of winter squash. And that starts to get me in the mood to maybe do a pasta with the winter squash. And, and again, potentially use some of those tomatoes in a fresh tomato sauce. And, and then you get these transition meals. So you may get you know some ravioli that's stuffed with winter pasta, yet it still has a light and vibrant tomato sauce on it. So you're getting kind of these transition product locally and, and putting those together. And also at this time of year, we still have a lot of folks who are raising different types of livestock. And this is before fall comes traditionally because you may not have the resources to carry those animals through the winter. This is when you traditionally will bring them to slaughter and, and have things. So you start preserving the meats and then you also have the meats. A lot of people think, a lot of times while you live on a farm and you eat meat year round, but really sort of spring and summer, you're, you're using all those vegetables. So you're eating very light, you're active, you got a ton of produce and it isn't really until fall that traditionally people would actually start to get into, I want to want to call it a meat eating season necessarily. That's when sort of meat comes back on the menu. So we'll start mm -hmm. doing something with those, maybe making some sausages, et cetera. That's so interesting. I had never thought about the livestock seasonality that way. If you hunt game, you know, back in the day when more people did that, fall was hunting season, but it does take a lot more resources to keep the livestock through fall and winter. So now would be the time to slaughter right. them. And you, so you want to raise them and have as many healthy livestock through the spring and summer and early fall as is possible. And spring is rebirth. So the animals are breeding. You need to have them grow up, have time to mature. And we actually do have some friends who live on the reservation. For them, there's a lot of spirituality, a lot of religious purpose, a lot of connecting to their roots in doing this type of seasonal hunting in the fall. Mm -hmm. The benefit for us as their friends is we'll get, you know, incredible cuts of elk and moose um, and that wild game that's truly wild. So people can go out and buy elk. I have some friends that chefs to celebrities who I can't mention, but I can <gasps> say everybody knows them. And it's funny because they'll be like, Mike, you're the only chef I know that I could call. Maybe you might have moose. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I can ship you. So, you know, so I'm taking down, putting the, the you dry ice on and, you know, shipping, you know, some moose to some of the celebrities. Wow. We get it. We really enjoy those types of meats. They're fun to cook with because they're so packed with flavor and so lean that you can challenge you a little bit as a chef. Where what's generally raised commercially 
is more forgiving. And actually, the same goes for salmon. So if you buy, for example, mm. a, and this is a little cooking tip for the audience, if you buy any kind of farm-raised salmon, anytime it says Atlantic salmon that's farm-raised, because there's like three of them that are wild and the rest are farm, the fat content is different and the amount of fat is different. So you can cook them a little bit longer and at a little bit higher temperature. But if you get something that's says Alaskan salmon, which is all wild because they're not allowed to farm, and you use that same recipe and do it exactly the same way, your salmon will come out like jerky because mm. it's, they have much less fat and a different type of fat. And so cooking for that amount of time will overcook and dry out a truly wild salmon. So you want to cook the wild salmon for shorter and at lower temperatures? A little bit lower, yeah. And, mm. and whenever I'm using any kind of wild seafood, and also game meats. I tend to be very generous with adding other kind of fats to help keep them moist and, and baste them because they can just uh, dry. Even the bison that we get, it's commercially raised. That's part of what we touch on with the PBS special. So you'll nice. get to see me out at our local bison farm. But these animals are raised 100% on natural Montana grass. So mm -hmm. their diet is the same as, as wild bison. Essentially, when I use bison versus other types of proteins, I, I have to actually have to treat it as a game meat. When you go into the grocery store and you look for bison, you really want to look for the ones that, that say grass-fed like that because a lot of people now, to try to cash in on the health aspect that people associate with bison, which is true, they're treating it like commercial cattle. So the animals mm -hmm. aren't being treated very well. And then they're being sent to feedlots for weeks where they're then fed corn, which is not their natural diet, in an effort to, to fatten them up. And obviously, then they, they can sell more. And, and so you want to stay away from, from that type of, of bison and find a producer, a plug for the people that, that helped us on the show. You can order bitterroot bison and they ship it. But that's the quality, wherever you can find it, that, that you want to look for. And it goes to what you're talking about. We, we really have to be attentive to how we source our foods. And just yesterday, I gave a talk. We're part of the stakeholders for the White House Conference on Hunger, Food, Nutrition. One of our take-home messages was, how do we source our food and how critical it is that, that we pay attention. And so that's our challenge as modern human beings is... Yeah, we have plenty of food where our ancestors had to hunt it, but, you know, everything they hunted, they knew was organic and natural. We still have to be hunter-gatherers. Right. <laughs> yeah. Hunter-gatherers in the supermarket. Exactly. <laughs> Just like bring the codes. Exactly. Any um, interesting takeaways from that session? What we really wanted to do for folks is really clearly identify what ultra-processed foods are. There's a big difference between just a processed food, which as we talked about, anytime we cook a food, it's processed because it's thermally processed. So anytime we put something in a mortar and a pestle and we grind it, we're processing food, those ingredients. That's not the same thing by any stretch of the imagination as ultra processing, where we're literally tearing the food apart, destroying the matrix and putting it back together and adding lots of things into that mix as we put it together. The marketing folks are really good at blurring those lines. I try to draw a line that helps people decide and see here's black, here's white, here's the dividing line. So you know what goes into each bin. They come along with their magic advertising eraser and you know blur the lines and say, well, everything's gray, just take what you want. It can be very deceptive. They use these 
You know, we, we call them FOBs, front of box taglines. I forget the exact cereal brand, but it is a real brand where it talks about packed with added fiber. So you buy that thinking fiber, I've heard that's good for me. This may taste like crap because it looks awful. It looks so awful. It's got to be healthy for me. So I'm going to buy <laughs> it and take it. Not realizing that the added fiber is actually carboxymethylcellulose. So carboxymethylcellulose is a byproduct of wood and cotton manufacturing, particularly a byproduct of, of wood chips. So basically what they're doing is adding wood chips. And actually, it's not as natural as wood chips because you have to take those wood chips and it goes through another process to become carboxymethylcellulose and that then gets added to the cereal. What it turns out from a study that was published over the summer is that that carboxymethylcellulose destroys our healthy gut bacteria. So it's not even as healthy as if you just nibbled on some wood chips. It's actually worse <laughs> Can you imagine? But, oh, you know, if you were to just look at the, the front of the box advertising, you would say, oh, you know, I've heard fiber is good for me. I'm going to spend the extra money for this healthy breakfast cereal item. And that's how they manipulate it. And they're allowed to do that because of the way the laws are written. The laws are not in our favor to protect us. That's for sure. It's so easy to get influenced by nice packaging and nice marketing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this isn't even marketing, but we've been watching Chef's Table on Netflix and the latest season is all about pizza, which I want to talk to you about because I know pizza is part of your regular routines. And, um, and but disclosure, Chris Bianco is a good friend of mine. So, Oh, um, no way. Yeah, is yeah, he one, of your, uh, one of your celebrity chefs that you ship out most to? Oh, no, no. Chris, Chris is a salt of the earth. Uh, you know, I, I was going to his restaurant and he's like, Mike, I'm opening the new place in LA. I can't be there to make you pizza. It's like, I don't go to your restaurant to actually expect you to make me a pizza. You're just, <laughs> you know, but that's just, that's just a kind of great human being he is. So I want everyone to know, Aww. all your listeners to know what you saw in that video on Chef's Table about Chris is 100% the real deal. He is just one of the nicest human beings on the planet. He is a genuine person. When you walk away from here and say, God, he seems like such a down to earth, nice guy. He really is. I can't say enough good things about, about Chris. He, he's a great guy. That's amazing. Everybody go watch that episode with Chris. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned on one of our previous episodes that you have, it's Friday pizza is the, yep. is the ritual, is it? And you make everything from scratch, right? Yep. Tell so, us about that. What kind of pizza do you like to make? So a Napolitano is sort of my go-to. I've got one of the little pizza ovens that allows me to get that temperature really hot. Uh, so mm. I wood fire it and nice. uh, in my little oven. You certainly can do pizzas. And when I was practicing before I had to save up for my little oven, I would make them in my home oven and you can do that. You just have to cook it a little longer, cook it a little different. The crust mm. will be a little different, but it's still really a delicious pizza. This is a sort of a great exercise. So if folks want to go to the website, you can find my Napolitano pizza dough recipe there. It's a great starter recipe. My pizza dough is hundred percent sourdough. What I do is I'll actually start it about 72 hours before I'm going to use it. So I'll start on a, usually like on a Tuesday night. What we're emphasizing here, Jane, which is just think a little bit about planning. When I ran a restaurant, we would have like, you know, this is what we got to do Monday. Here's what we're serving Tuesday. You plan your menu and you use everything together. And it's not a bad exercise for the home cook because it saves you money. It's good for the planet because by putting things together, you really cut down on waste. So if I pick up carrots at my CSA today and they have the green bits on them, 
I'll be thinking about something where I can use the carrot top. So maybe it's a pesto to go with my sourdough bread. Maybe it's, I'm going to use them as part of the greens to flavor a stock. You could start using all the bits and bobs so nothing gets wasted. So I'll start with that, like on a Tuesday night and I just either put it in the refrigerator during the summer when it's cooler now, I actually just set it out, usually out in the garage. We don't put anything out in Montana till bear season is over. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you saw the viral video. Somebody in Montana got Chewy delivered to their front porch and they had a ring camera. When the bear came up and said, Chewy, it's the peanut butter box. <laughs> and just dragged the whole Chewy box up into the woods and, and you know, took it to their little Yogi Bear cave. Oh, my god! They were at their Chewy delivery for their animals. Wow, lucky day for them. <laughs> yeah, so so we do not we do not put anything outside until after the bears are, are gone here in Montana. Yeah, that's uh, smart. But you know, I let that ferment, and then we'll uh, take that out uh, on a Friday. And my sauce now that I have the fresh tomatoes, I can use those when we have them in season. We will can our tomatoes. So when we get a lot during the bounty of the summer. We'll spend a couple hours on the weekend and we'll can them. And that way we actually have them all through the winter. So the only month we're actually out of garden fresh tomatoes is probably sometime in May because we'll use up our tomatoes and they're not quite in season here yet. So we will suffer a little bit in May, but otherwise we have them year round. That's a great way to preserve a summer bounty. And if you're buying things at farmer's market, because we buy the extra ones from our CSA, they're so cheap when they're in season because they're trying to get rid of them. And if mm -hmm. you have the ability to do some canning and then just put it on the shelf and use them throughout the year, again, very economical, helping reduce waste, and you won't find anything better for you uh, mm. than those garden fresh veggies. Do and you then, put anything in the can when you can it? My wife does all the canning. She will sometimes add just a little natural acid in the form of lemon juice, depending on what you're canning. The tomatoes have a, a natural acidity but we'll usually add just a little bit of lemon juice. And that, that's all it is that goes in there with them. And, wow. and they just keep for months. Yeah, they, we just can them and they'll, they'll keep them. And we've actually had them a year later. Wow. Um, as crazy as things are at the supermarkets these days, like you go in and all of a sudden what you thought you could buy is gone. And you can't find this or that. It's a great way to stabilize your home pantry. I know mm. I've got these and I know I've got that. What's great, you just put them in a closet you're not using and, and convert that into your pantry. So we had a storage room we weren't using downstairs and we just converted that with a couple of Home Depot cheap metal shelves and we just stack it, you know, full mm. of, of stuff that, that we store. And also, you know, I get my 50 pound sacks of flour and we just use that as an accessory little storage pantry unit. Where do you get your flour from? So I go online and I get organic flour. So you can get it from really a bunch of different vendors. I also have been getting from some of my friends at the Lonsky Farms in North Dakota, actually the grain shipped to me for less than a hundred bucks. You can get a adapter that goes on your stand mixer and it'll mill the grain for you. So you can have fresh milled flour. Maybe we should do a show on that because that's a whole nother world, but it's fascinating. The, the, the flavors that you get, et cetera. And, and you can make it as bolted, as fine a flour as you want. You can just use your home sieves. 
I have a couple of, of drum sieves that I use for when I make mashed potatoes and things. And if you just kind of turn it upside down and then push the flour through, you can bolt it to, a, you know, a certain fineness. People think, oh, well, if I do that, you know, you get this stuff that's just like chewing on a, on a rubber hose because it's got all the really chewy brand, but you can bolt it as, as fine as you want. There's lots and lots of places. A Bluebird is another big granary online. There are some other baking shops. You can get the flowers and you can even buy just, you know, the big bags at the supermarket. Bob's Red Mill has great flowers if they're at your local market as well. And in Montana, since we're such a big wheat producer, actually we supply a lot of the wheat that Italians turn into pasta, believe it or not that could ship back to us. Uh, you know, actually a, a lot of that comes from Montana. Wheat Montana, you just go into there and get organic local 50 pound sacks. So wow. uh, wheat, wheat Montana, I don't know if they ship online, but folks should check them out as well. That's all the stuff that's grown here locally, organic, help support the folks in our region here. So we appreciate that. So lots of, lots of places to get that flour. And then, so for the sauce, it's just the crushed tomatoes and salt is all that goes in. If you want, Chris actually has a, a brand, Chris Bianco. I'll probably shoot myself in the foot because it's like a, a hidden gem among pizza aficionados. But for <laughs> your audience, I'm willing to do that, Jade. So here's a, a chef's secret. If you don't have the tomatoes and you want them for your pizza, the best ones to get are Bianco di Napoli, as in Chris's last name, D-I, Napoli, a brand of tomatoes. They're all organic. Mm -hmm. And when you get them, get the whole ones or get the crushed ones, and then you crush them by hand. Do not put them in a blender. You pulverize the seeds and mm -hmm. the tomato seeds have a bitterness to them. So you, you don't get kind of that sweetness from that the tomato sauce. So you just crush them as much as you can by hand, take out any big chunks of stuff, but don't pulverize the seeds. Just a little fresh sea salt and, and that's it. I'm not a, a fan of cooking the sauce because it's going to get cooked on the pizza. So it tends to make it more like a tomato paste when it mm. gets twice cooked. I just put a little bit of the fresh tomato sauce on. We have the ability to get a fresh grass-fed buffalo mozzarella here uh, through my, my cheese connection. I encourage folks, just get the freshest cheese that you can. Uh, avoid some of those ones in the packets. When you see the pre-shredded low mozzarella cheeses, those are often contain emulsifiers. Those emulsifiers include CMC as well as xanthan gum. They're the most common emulsifiers in ultra-processed foods. So you're doing this thing to build this healthy pizza, and then you put this crappy emulsified cheese on top, and it's going to destroy your gut bacteria. One of those hidden things that we were talking about. So you really want to look for uh, whatever cheeses you like, and I'll vary it. I'll use the blue cheese with maybe a cream-based sauce and some prosciutto on one. In the fall, we'll get a lot of local mushrooms. So I may do an all-mushroom pizza, like a white pizza with a little bit of cheese and just some mushrooms on it. If you're going to do that, definitely cook the mushrooms down first because they have so much water they won't cook on the pizza. They'll just make mm. it soggy. And then this is a great tip for anyone that, you know, kind of wants to get creative with their food, but doesn't have a lot of space. Maybe you live in an apartment somewhere. Get a window box and grow some herbs. Yeah. I grow fresh basil, a couple of fresh basil leaves on top. That's my classic margarita. I will occasionally put some, and I, I know this probably gross people out, but I love the anchovies, real anchovies. Okay. And everyone else in my house hates them. So that no one will want a slice of my pizza, which is good. I get <laughs> There's a little bit of pizza protection that's associated with putting little stinky fish on your pizza. <laughs> Although the cat really, my cat TC, he'll have some with me. 
Are you an olive person? Yeah, I love olives. All of you. I love, I love you and all your fans and olives. I love that. I'm a big fan of putting those on as well. And and that's a great thing about pizza. You could do anything you want. It's a blank canvas. So, you know, what are your favorite things? Whatever's in season, you know, put them on, create and enjoy. What I do recommend is get a basic recipe. Start with a basic pizza. A Napolitano is, is very simple. You know, it's just got those ingredients, but it lets you practice with it because there's so many variables that go in. How long you want to ferment your dough, when you take it out, how you push your dough out. For example, for the Napolitano, we don't ever use a rolling pin. I do do that if I want to create like a, a Chicago style tavern pizza that's a very okay. thin cracker-like crust. So I'll roll that out because I don't want a lot of rise in it. And I want it really, really thin. But for Napolitano, it has to be kind of hand done. So that's another variable. And then you you'll find it? the right amounts. Yeah, you can tell. You can throw, you can throw, yeah, <laughs> so there are people, and I, I have thrown it up and caught it. But I learned from folks in Napoli. So I, I've done the, the VPN school, the Napolitano Pizza School, and we're not allowed to, to throw it up. That's probably easiest for everybody. (laughs) Yeah, I I recommend keeping your pizza, you know, just work with gravity. If you need to pick it up and do the steering wheel technique, Mm. that's fine. But, you know, if you keep it down in front of you, basically, you know, you have this yeast risen dough. And what you're doing is working from the center out to just push that air to the crust. So you have that flat center and the air's all packed into the crust. Mm. And then when you put that in, that's what gives you that light and airy crust of a Napolitano, but it'll get that sort of eggshell snap to it. Mm. It shouldn't be too doughy. So it should have just a little bit of kind of a snap to it. But when you break it open, it should be very light and airy. That's what I really enjoy about about the Napolitano. (gasps) My mouth is watering. (laughs) I really want a pizza now. But not just to eat it. I, I, I want to make it now. It, it sounds so fun. It, it really is fun. And, you know, once you get the basic yeast recipe down, I encourage folks to start, you know, experimenting with a little bit of the sourdough because the sourdough is, is so good for you. It's, you know, kind of that natural prebiotic that we, we've talked about, probiotic as well. And for the listeners, you know, who might have young kids, you know, involving them in the pizza making, that's a great family exercise on a Friday night or a Saturday or a Sunday. And, you know, kids love pizza and you can make something, you know, for your kids that is good for them. They can start to learn some culinary skills. So, yeah, it's just a great sort of food exercise in so many ways and, and a great way to start to learn how to hunt and gather those right ingredients. That's not too complicated. Really, you're looking for the tomatoes. If you want to do the tomato sauce, or you could start with a white pizza, if you like, then, you know, whatever kind of toppings you want, whether you want a little bit of cheese or or you don't. For the people that have issues maybe with lactose and, and cow's milk cheese, if you can get some fresh buffalo mozzarella, that's very different. My wife has issues with lactose, but when I make it with the grass-finished buffalo mozzarella, she has no problems. Uh, Other alternatives are goat and sheep cheeses because the casein proteins and other things are not the same as they are in cow's milk. We have someone who makes a local truffle goat cheese that we can get. Wow. And just a few little dabs of that. Yeah. And, And again, we talk about using everything. It comes packed in a little bit of olive oil with a bunch of herbs on it. The whole thing goes on the pizza. 
So, mm. you know, it's goat cheese and I use that oil to season the pizza and the herbs that are in there. And then, you know, I add the little bits and bobs that, that I want on top of that. But that's one of my favorite white cheeses. It sounds expensive because we're talking about truffled goat cheese, you know. And right. Yeah. Oil. Anything but with I, truffle, I feel like has a giant price tag. Yeah. Well, the, you know, to get what you need for the pizza is like four dollars. Oh, you know, and if you go, that's to really not bad. Yeah. You, and and you, you pay like two or three bucks for a topping, you know, per topping anyway. So you're, you're yeah. getting something you put on, on the whole pizza. I actually like to do that. I will pickle beets and then put, uh, here's another, okay, we're giving, I'm, I'm selling out all my pizza tricks here. <laughs> all the gems uh, here. But another thing that we do as a professional chef is it's not just about varying the ingredients. We want to vary textures. And we include in textures hot and cold. So just think about a hot fudge sundae. We love that cold mm. ice cream and then that hot fudge, you know, and that interface yeah. where, you know, the heat meets the cold and it's kind of that warm, gooey center thing. We do that with other foods as well. And so you can do things and put things on the pizza after it comes out of the oven that are cold in nature. So I'll do that truffled goat cheese pizza and then I'll add some cold pickled beets that mm. I've made it at home. One of my favorites is a recipe on the blog side for it is a, a gin pickled beet. Gin, which is an ancient medicinal recipe actually for health. You can get a lot of these great craft gins that have unique flavor profiles. And I actually had one uh, that we legally brought back from Ireland that's made with seaweed. It really does have a sea, slightly salty taste to it, which is very interesting. So I'm going to use that probably, again, we, we're still getting beets out of the garden to pickle and, and do some gin pickling of the beets. So it adds the juniper flavors and, you know, some of these other classic gin flavors. Mm. So you get this very beautiful herb profile with the gin and the beet, and then you can chop that up and you sprinkle that on the pizza. And so now you have sort of this hot you know, melted truffle goat cheese. The dough is cooked with this nice seasoned and flavored olive oil. And then you kind of get a cold contrast with the gin pickled beet. Texturally, from that kind of cold to warm perspective, you're adding another layer of complexity to the dish that really, you know, is, is one of the things that if I'm crafting a sort of high-end recipe, those are one of the things that, that we look for. And you could do it with anything. Even if you just want to then take, I'll make some homemade ricotta because I can get unpasteurized milk here in Montana. I can't say from whom because we're not allowed to, but I can okay. get it for our pets. If you wanted, you can make cheese from it, which I'll make a homemade mozzarella. From huh. the way that's left over after making mozzarella, you can make ricotta, whey ricotta. Uh, wow. It's way good. And uh, <laughs> all the cheese puns. <laughs> yep. uh, the pizza episodes are always cheesy, right? But they deliver. Oh, another one. Uh, <laughs> Just keep on coming. And uh, so after it comes out and the, the, you have something like mozzarella that's melted, just put a few dabs of fresh ricotta on and you find that cool creaminess contrast with the warm pizza and the other melted cheese beautifully. So oh. these are all little tips and tricks for folks to do in their home. And, and a lot of my friends who are now professional pizza makers, they actually started out at home. They were just making their home pizzas like you're talking about doing, and they got into it, and it became so popular amongst their friends, and people say, hey, I'll pay you for a pizza, that they're mm. now doing this full-time, you know, doing events and making, you know, a good living, making 
really good food for people. And it's interesting. One of my, my buddies, Boogie from Boogie's Food and Pizza over on the East Coast, he said a lot of the folks that I serve my pizza to, he said, you know, I make a little personal 10 inch pizza and they're like, you know, Boogie, I love your pizza and I can eat the whole thing and I feel great. Whereas if I go and get like two slices of an industrial pizza, it's like, I don't feel good for hours after that. And yeah. it, it really goes back to how these are made. So we were doing a, a pizza room and we were talking to a guy who runs one of the U.S. chains, but he runs it overseas. I was just telling you, my pizza rises for three days. So it's a 72 hour ferment. Theirs doesn't even rise two hours. So it's just mm. basically you pump full a ton of yeast and a ton of sugar to get mm. the yeast to get really active and rise that dough very quickly. And that makes something that's very hard for us as human beings to digest. And so it goes back to when we talk about, you know, sourcing that, you know, even a pizza dough isn't a pizza dough. Just how you make it is just something for our survival, our hunter-gatherer survival. We really have to go back to start paying attention to that. I hadn't finished my story earlier. So we had been watching Chef's Table and my husband was so, he was so craving a pizza. And so he ordered one last night and I actually wasn't home, but he ended up eating half the entire pizza. It was like a 14 inch pizza. And lo and behold, he feels terrible today. <laughs> so that definitely checks out. So we did talk about how sugar can be really destructive to your gut. What about yeast? Like how, how does that affect your gut? Well, I think it, it depends. Now, if you want to use them, like in the recipe I have for my Napolitano dough, it's a very small amount of yeast and we give them time to do yeasty things, which is, you know, they, they multiply and they eat the starches and they convert it into alcohol and CO2. But when it's used in an industrial way, you know, where they just add insane amounts of the yeast, because yeast is, as an ingredient is pretty cheap, and they, they just pump it full of sugar you know, it's almost like a perversion of that natural process. And in that case, what they produce can be very detrimental to our bodies. That's where we want to plan ahead because we want to let the yeast do the work for us. I'm making something really flavorful, but it's taking me about 15 minutes of my time. So all I do is I put it in. I don't even need the dough. I mean, I do four turns, you know, with my sourdough bread. That's it. It sits in there. I go out, you know, between 30 and 45 minutes. I pull it up, I fold it down once, I go do other things. And I do that four times. That's all the kneading the bread gets. What this technique really is, is going back to the way when people made bread, when they would make it for a village. And you didn't have time to sit there and roll things out and knead it by hand and do all this aggressive stuff for hours and hours when you're making hundreds of loaves. So, you know, you just kind of did it and, and you just let nature do the work. And believe it or not, it does it for us. It makes it tastier from a chef's perspective and makes it healthier for us from a physician perspective. And that's a ferment, bread is a ferment. And the same thing with marinade. So throw something on on a Thursday or Friday that maybe you wanna have for brunch on Sunday and just let it ferment. Just throw your seasonings in, let them marinate and ferment and, and it's gonna do the work for you. We can get to this better food place in a way that isn't constantly gobbling up our time, because that's the one thing in our modern lives, we don't have a lot of, but you know, preparing meals was something that was the focus of a lot of time. That's what they had hundreds of years ago. We don't have that, but we can use our brains again and be smart about it and let nature do the work for us. So those are kind of two techniques 
and we use those in a professional kitchen as well. I mean, they've always got something fermenting or rising mm. or on the sourdough that's, you know, in development for, for down the road. Wow. I did not expect for this episode to turn into a pizza deep dive, but I'm not mad about it. <laughs> <laughs> we can never be mad about the pizza experience. And and I will say, if anyone gets a chance to go to any of Chris's restaurants, he's in Phoenix. I ate the whole pizza myself, the whole Chris <laughs> Bianco experience. I felt great. And actually, it was right before I had to give a keynote address the next day. So that's why I was in Phoenix. I ate it and I just, I slept like a baby and I felt great the next day. Um, wow. But that's again, a, a credit to what we were talking about and how, you know, Chris crafts that type of dough. If anyone has an opportunity to go to any of, the, of Chris's restaurants, I, 10 out of 10, I mean, it was, it's actually been on my bucket list for many years before I finally got to go. And my bucket list has a pretty high bar that just ticked every box. I mean, it delivered. <laughs> yeah, it delivered. Yeah, I I can't think of another reason to go to Phoenix. But when after I saw that episode, I was like to my husband, we got to go to Phoenix. Check this place out. And, and if you do go early, because as it opened, because I knew better, within 15 minutes, there wasn't a table left. And that was wow. 11.30 in the morning. Okay. And then the line starts forming. And I've seen the line you know, around the block, I think that was maybe in the show. So if you're going to go, go early and food with that. I mean, whether it's Chris Bianco or our moms, you know, mm. food with that kind of love, is just never bad. Mm -hmm. it, it, except the halibut my mom made once when she really <laughs> overcooked it. But other than that, you know, <laughs> yeah, and I tell and that story she... just for the halibut of it. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a pleasure having you here, Chef Dr. Mike. This was super fun. I, I think I'm going to go make a pizza. <laughs> I, hope, I hope we've inspired a lot of people, Jane. And folks, if you have challenges and questions, I am happy if Jane's willing to start the next one off by answering your pizza workshop questions. Maybe we'll do one. I can actually show folks how, how to do it on a, on a Friday and we'll roll it out and we'll toss them in and yeah, maybe, maybe we'll just do a little pizza workshop. I would be so down. You make one that your husband can eat and feel great. Exactly. <laughs> we'll redeem that pizza experience. All right. Great. Till next time. Till next time. Thanks, Jane. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to nourish your body and I'll talk to you next time.